Hello, and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's podcast, we're honored to have Mark Moore, Strategy Director for Uber Elevate. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Oh, you're welcome. I've been looking forward to this, and uh, I, I read your old puffin piece from NASA, so we're going to dive into some of the good stuff. But before we get into NASA, I want to kick this off to you. Uh, last Saturday, we had the SpaceX Falcon 9 uh, Dragon launch, putting uh, two astronauts into space and to the International Space Station. Growing up, did you ever dream about heading into space and being an astronaut? So that was a really awesome accomplishment, but I'm, I'm going to give a negative answer. I didn't. So instead, um, I grew up in New Zealand. And I grew up absolutely loving aircraft and everything about aviation. Uh, in fact, we lived right on the ocean. So I would, uh, on windy days, I would jump off the sand dunes and try to fly. Um, so by the time I was 12 years old, I knew I wanted to work for NASA, but not doing space. I wanted uh, to do uh, the latest and greatest aeronautics research uh, to develop uh, new aircraft. And when you were jumping off the sand dunes, did you build that aircraft to do that? Or is it something that you um, acquired somehow? Oh, I definitely built lots and lots of model aircraft and flew and crashed them. Um, it's only, you know, and then after uh, 32 years at, at NASA, and now that I'm at Uber, uh, building real aircraft. So actually the last 10 years uh, at NASA, I was able to uh, lead three different uh, flight demonstration activities. So we did uh, develop uh, several different aircraft that focused on uh, pioneering distributed electric propulsion. And fortunately, we didn't crash any of those. Oh, that's good news. So you probably learned a lot from your childhood of what not to do then. You know, uh, definitely. Uh, one of the, in, in this experience, there's a lot of lessons learned through failure. Failure is not a bad thing. Um, and if you really want to accelerate the pace of technology, you have to be willing to fail. Um, and I'll say that's a big difference in my experience in the last four years uh, in Silicon Valley and at Uber versus NASA. NASA is really, really safety focused and um, you have to go through a lot more red tape to get something up in the air. Um, and Silicon Valley is much more willing to learn by failing. It's interesting you say that because in the NASA Puffin piece that you wrote, you talked a lot about redundancy as it relates to safety. Are you taking those same priorities towards safety uh, that you'd have from NASA to Uber around with the redundancy? Yeah, I mean, that's the exciting thing about electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft is now with this core new technology of distributed electric propulsion, you can get rid of all the single failure parts that plague helicopters. You know, uh, I don't want to scare anyone from flying a helicopter because they're really amazing machines, but a helicopter has hundreds of single fault critical parts. And if any one of those breaks, that helicopter is going to come down. With this new technology of distributed electric propulsion, you don't have that. You can design the aircraft to be completely redundant in terms of thrust and control. So if a part breaks, the EV toll can still fly, take off, and land without a problem. 
The other point that you you clearly articulated in your NASA paper was noise. And no, noise is a big issue. And when a helicopter goes over a city where I used to live in the LA area, uh, it's very, very loud. And with eVTOL, it won't be. Can you kind of dive into the noise and compare and contrast the noise from an eVTOL to a traditional helicopter? Yeah, yeah, because that is one of the breakthrough capability that distributed electric propulsion enables. With helicopters, uh, the rotors have to spin really fast because even when you're cruising at 100 to 150 miles per hour, you're still in edgewise rotor flight. So you have an advancing blade and a retreating blade. That is one blade that's going forward with your direction of travel and one that's going the opposite direction. So in order to fly at, at those speeds, you've got to spin the blades really fast. Otherwise, that retreating blade stalls, doesn't create any lift, and then the helicopter can't fly. Well, with eVTOL aircraft, you don't have that same uh, constraint. We're able to have many smaller rotors and be able to articulate them, to have them actually be in the direction, uh, producing thrust in the direction of travel. You don't have edgewise rotors. So that means you don't have advancing or retreating blades, and that means you can spin those blades much, much slower. So for context on this, um, most of the eVTOL aircraft that are quiet are spinning at about 400 feet per second tip speeds. That's about half as fast of a rotational rate than helicopter blades. And the noise from a first principles perspective uh, equates to the fifth power of that tip speed. So eVTOL aircraft are able to be half times a half times a half times a half times a half quieter than the quietest helicopters or on the order of 30 times quieter. So quiet to me, you know, it's another way of saying ultra low noise. And when your team at Uber is meeting with an elected official in one of the areas that you've publicly disclosed where you're going to operate, how do you convince that elected official that this is not helicopter noise? And when that elected official meets with their constituents, they could say, we, we with full certainty, we know this will not create noise pollution. How do you go about convincing uh, and demonstrating to those officials that this is truly a quieter, uh, more sustainable form of transportation? Yeah, one of the things that I, I learned at NASA was that, you know, I've, I again, for 32 years, I was always pushing uh, advanced aircraft, visionary uh, technology breakthroughs. And one of the things that I learned as I put in different proposals and tried to get research funds, because you have to compete for funds, even at, even at NASA, to do the research, is that it's really important for decision makers to, um, to really get it. And that is that you offer them the chance to see, touch and feel and hear the kind of breakthrough that, that, that you're working towards. Um, and, and the important part of that is when they do have that experience, it invokes an emotional connection to what you're doing. So as we go to introduce uh, this new technology and these eVTOL aircraft in different cities, it's gonna be really important that they have the opportunity to overcome prior beliefs 
with these new emotional experiences of being able to hear an actual EV toll that's 30 times quieter. So I'm, I'm really excited that we're just entering this stage uh, this year where instead of all these demonstration flights being done in private, are going to be able to go to the next level of being public demonstrations for those kind of officials where they can have that visceral response, oh my gosh, you've knocked my socks off. This is so much better than a helicopter. I'm really excited to hear you talk about public demos because over the last couple of years, SAE's hosted a series of SAE demo days where they put elected officials in self-driving cars. And these elected officials, both on the state and federal level, have these aha moments. Wow, this technology is real and this technology is game-changing and will have a positive impact on my community. So I'm really excited about the Uber Elevate demos. When and where can we expect to see some of these early demos? Yeah, so the important thing to realize about Uber Elevate is that, um, I'll go ahead and say it, we don't have the typical Silicon Valley hubris, right? We're not saying, oh, we can do the whole thing all by ourselves." All the way back to our original white paper that we released in uh, 2016, I'm really proud that we took more of a, a NASA approach, and that is a collaboration approach, where we invited all of industry to come together as an ecosystem to make this real, because this is a a multi-billion dollar uh, endeavor for us, uh, you know, to accomplish this. So we're not doing everything at Uber. And so those flight demonstrations are very much uh, a partner activity. We aren't building aircraft, our partners are. In fact, we have eight different partners, all developing prototypes, some of them well along into the certification of those aircraft. So um, essentially our partners are determining when their aircraft are ready for uh, the flight demonstration to be done in a public uh, manner. Let's talk about certification. Publicly, you've said it will cost 700 million to a billion to certify uh, an aircraft for VTOL. Could you explain to the listeners and to somebody like myself, when you certify, where does that ginormous cost go? And what are all like the different elements involving in certifying uh, an aircraft such as a VTOL? So for certification costs, there can be a big variance depending on whether you have new technologies that need to get through that certification process. Where the CRSSR 22 was on the order of $150 million to get ballistic uh, recovery parachutes certified and carbon composites, while a similar aircraft, the Lancer Columbia, was only about a $30 million certification because they weren't the ones pushing through a new technology. So for eVTOL uh, certification, you're going to need on the order of 300 to 400 uh, engineers working it. Um, and if you take a company like Joby, they're already four years into developing their vehicle. Albeit they started with 20 engineers four years ago, now they're up to that three to 400 uh, person engineer uh, workforce, and they still have another three years to go. So it's very easy to spend four to $500 million just on the engineering, with a lot of that being software for these fly-by-wire aircraft. Add to that, uh, essentially setting up the initial low-volume production, which is about $150 million, and then thousands of hours of flight testing 
and building the first five to 10 aircraft. So it's really easy to get up to that 700 million mark to certify something that's embracing these, these type of new technologies. Does the DO Department of Defense, are they helping in any of this development of this technology or is, is NASA continuing uh, to help in this development of this technology? So they're playing an important part, both DOD and NASA, but I will say this is a bit unusual because usually the Department of Defense and the military has more money than everyone else and is the incubator of new technologies. Here we flip that around where Silicon Valley and the commercial markets are the pioneers, are the incubators of this new technology spending the billions of dollars. And instead you have the military essentially following along and figuring out uh, where and how they can help. And it's really important because we need to be working this together. So you have people um, like, like Dr. Roper, um, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force, who's done a fantastic job of stepping in and instead of pushing military requirements, he's finding ways to work w across the companies and with us to incubate this technology and build flight hours, build experience with this technology um, for both uh, commercial and military purposes. And I'll say it's really important, and Dr. Roper is doing a great thing here because previously, you know, with drones, the military didn't do this. And you ended up with commercial uh, entities essentially driving drone development, where you have companies like DJI, which is a, a Chinese company that essentially now controls the drone market. And it's really important that as we realize the many applications for these eVTOL aircraft and for this technology set across public services, across military missions, across air taxis, across regional access. There's such an enabler of a capability set that is such a breakthrough in terms of being quiet, efficient, and ha extending our mobility reach that it's really vital and in the national interest, uh, security interests of the United States to participate. So the national security interest is, is a smart one because, as you mentioned, DJI controls the market. And we've all seen uh, the comments that have come out of the Pentagon. Does Is the Pentagon and the DOD as a whole, are they viewing this as a, as a national security issue, as a national pride issue where they do not want another country to control this market? Is that why the resources are being put the way they are? I, I don't see it as a national pride thing at all. It is It is a recognition of the incredible uh, opportunities that exist because of these uh, new technologies and a realization that, frankly, it's an inevitable, right? I mean, you look at our cities, our major me metropolitan areas are coming to gridlock, right? The, the transportation speeds that we're able to achieve on the ground you look at a city like LA and they're on the order of 20 miles per hour on the highway during um, the rush hour. So there's an inevitable need to go into that third dimension and take advantage uh, of being able to have much more capacity and to do what aviation does so well, which is move quickly 
and achieve high productivity. So no, it, it, it is not just national pride. It is a recognition of the incredible value that, uh, that exists with this new industry. The value is, is important because you know a lot of individuals uh, value their time, and you're 100% right about gridlock and the single occupancy vehicles, which only continue to grow, which in this new world will probably only continue to grow. As we go vertical, how, is it FAA or who's going to control that? So um, like the flight pass, is that going to be like lanes in the sky or how is that going to work as we start adding on more air, aircraft to the sky? And then also what height will would you assume those vehicles will fly? We're very actively developing what we call dynamic sky lanes. And in a very close collaborative partnership with NASA and the FAA, as well as major airports like DFW. And essentially what this is, is being able to reduce the separation distances that are currently required by the FAA. The FAA controls the airspace from one foot above the ground to all the way to space. And these aircraft will fly at approximately an altitude of 1,000 to 2,000 feet. So fairly low, right? Way below um, what commercial airliners are flying at, which is more like 30,000 feet. And drones are essentially flying below that um, at essentially one to 400 feet. So we're in this lower altitude but it, it still, it's absolutely critical enabling technology to be able to reduce the separation uh, between these aircraft and take advantage of precision navigational capabilities that now exist in these uh, small aircraft. And so I'm incredibly proud that uh, our lead on this is Tom Prevo. He came from, from NASA as well. And he is one of the fathers of what's called UTM the Unmanned Traffic Management System, which was pioneered at NASA as a core technology set for managing all of the airspace at the lower altitudes so that every aircraft can know where every other one is and have really, really safe monitoring and deconfliction uh, of all the aircraft, which in the future will be thousands of aircraft flying over any given city. Then will the, the unmanned delivery drones, will those go into the, the UTM system as well? Yeah, very much. So, I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing about developing this, this UTM framework as for airspace control is that it feeds and nourishes many different markets, whether that's uh, urban air taxis and ride sharing, uh, aerial ride sharing, or drone delivery, uh, such as Amazon is doing, we're also doing for Uber Eats. So there's just a plethora of, uh, of missions that will be enabled through this new UTM uh, airspace control. So in other, and if you look at the Uber business, the UTM is very similar to, the, to a platform uh, in, in simple terms, kind of like the Uber platform of connecting different things. Yeah, I, exactly. In, in fact, uh, if you listen to our, our, our CEO, Dara, he's very much uh, always speaking about being a platform that enables all to come and participate in uh, essentially this on-demand transportation revolution. And so we very much want to do that not, not only on the ground, but in the air to invite um you know, any company that has a good vehicle 
to be able to participate um, as long as they can meet requirements for uh, very high levels of safety and productivity. And especially very, very low levels of noise. With partnerships and understanding the certification process of what it takes and moving passengers, do any of the large major airlines start to investigate this space since they have a long history of, of dealing with the FAA and moving paying passengers around the globe? Yeah, in fact, uh, we are actively talking to different airlines. Um, it is a bit different than than what they do. Um, but if, you know, a lot of our trips are actually to and from the airport as like an airport uh, uh, sh a shuttle that is from a city center uh, to the, the major airport and back. So if we're going to create the most seamless uh, transportation experience for our users, it's natural that we would want to partner with a Delta American or United so that a passenger can have that seamless uh, experience of being able to get off of a, an airline at an airport and be whisked downtown um, without lots of overhead burden. So, so, I mean, we'll see, right? We're still at uh, a very early part of this industry where the airliners are, are trying to figure out what their role is. Um, but I do think from my perspective, it makes a lot more sense for them to partner with us um, than to compete and ramp up their own service. Because a lot of what this service is about is again, providing a multimodal trip experience where we need to combine that ground trip with flying across the cities to be able to make that uh, seamless transportation. How far will the, the VTOLs go as they start to first roll out? Is there a range that you're aiming towards? Yeah, um, the aircraft uh, that our partners are developing are designed for a 60 mile range. I know that doesn't sound a lot, but our average uh, trip distance is on the order of 15 to 25 miles so that uh, the, an aircraft would be able to do several of these uh, trips um, before they would uh, go into the reserves, the bottom 30% of the battery. But honestly, we don't, they don't, and we don't design these vehicles for just a, a range. What's more important is to design them for three hours of continuous operation where we can do that average trip and be able to land, be able to offload, onload passengers in five minutes and recharge the aircraft to top off that battery and get enough to do the next trip and be able to do that for three hours straight without going into the bottom reserve uh, portion of the battery. What type of backhaul do you have to have as it relates to the infrastructure to charge that battery so again we're fortunate that we have very strong partners uh, on the hardware side relating to real estate and the skyport development such as hillwood macquarie and others so in 2016 we laid out as part of our vision that these skyport skyports would leverage uh, elevated parking garages and be able to use the top floor uh, of a parking garage um, as a skyport and because of ride sharing parking garages aren't being used as much as they used to be because a lot more people are, are, are taking ubers um, so with those skyports essentially uh, there is a utility drop uh, to tie into the grid that's uh, required 
on the order of a Costco type of drop of a couple uh, megawatts. At some of the larger locations, it could be as large as five to 10 megawatts, um, which again, we're working with fantastic partners such as Black and Veatch uh, and others to essentially be ready with those utility drops at these different Skyport locations as we ramp up service towards the end of 2023. That's wonderful. You've mentioned throughout this podcast partners a lot, and I commend you and Dara and the leader yourself and the leader at Ubership, um, the Uber leadership for focusing on partnerships because you're going to uh, enable this technology to scale faster for the, the benefit of society and humanity faster than any one company could. How do the partnerships work? Is it are they approaching you and say, "Hey, Mark, we have you know we do blah 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 or X Y Z," or is it are you reaching out to them uh, for to kind of fill in the the ecosystem? How is that tr- uh, transaction working? Uh, both ways. Uh, we certainly initiate a lot of partnerships as we see different gaps in the ecosystem, but we also have many uh, you know partners coming to us and wanting to participate. It is a very exciting opportunity where we are at the dawn, uh, the incubation of a new industry, and those who uh, essentially uh, are able to make the investment to get in there uh, early have an advantageous uh, position. So for instance, um, one company that we've been working very closely with is Honeywell, because all of these vehicles uh, essentially are needing the same technology of digital fly-by-wire systems that large commercial uh, transports use. And Honeywell is one of the major providers of those fly-by-wire systems. So it's incredibly helpful for them to be essentially subsidizing the entire industry by developing these new lightweight, low-cost fly-by-wire controllers that every single one of these eVTOL developers can use. So that's a case where Honeywell came to us and offered to, to, to be a partner, and we were very excited to, to start working with them. This is wonderful because the ecosystem is only going to continue to grow. And I want to jump really you know, quickly back into your history. You were at NASA for 32 years, and you authored the NASA Puffin Electric Tail Sitter VTOL concept paper. Uh, which everybody uh, has said they caught Larry Page's eye. Any thoughts on that? Did Larry ever call you up and say, hey, wonderful paper, let's talk? Okay, I'm going to give you a scoop here because I think enough time has gone by where where I can tell this story. So yes, uh, very much uh, a meeting happened shortly after the Puffin paper um, came out. And I was privileged to have... Uh, many months uh, of interaction with Larry as he saw the opportunity of this new technology set and decided to make a really major investment and be the pioneer to to really start this whole uh, industry. And I vividly remember one of the one of the best experiences of my life was several months into um, talking uh, with Larry, where I I went up to his office. He and Sergey uh, uh, shared an office uh, at the Google headquarters in Mountain View. Went up to his office, said hi, started talking, and he said, here, come with me. And um, 
we went down and got into a little Google, Google car and started driving. And I'm like, what the heck? Where are we going? What? And he didn't tell me. He didn't, didn't say what, what we were doing. And he drives uh, to a, a building a couple blocks away. Get out. We walk in. And I'm standing in this building not knowing what's happening. And he said, this is where I'm going to do it. This is where I'm starting the first eVTOL company. And it was just like, I, 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 I kept my composure, but inside I was pumping my fist and going, yes, this is really happening. And again, it, it was it, one of the privileges of, of my life is to interact with, with Larry. I didn't involve, uh, end up being involved with the company. Um, partly because I speak my mind a little bit too much, but it, it, it really was an incredible experience because uh, there's only a few intuitive engineers that I've met in my entire life. And Larry Page is one of them where he just, he didn't know the, the technology disciplines, but he understood the opportunity and could put the pieces together. And the only other intuitive engineer that, I, that I've met is, is uh, Joe Ben Bevert who leads Joby Aviation and is, in my opinion, developing the most breakthrough eVTOL um, out there. And um, it, it is because he is such an intuitive engineer that he understands how all the pieces need to come together to create a great product. So you go in there and you're like, this is really happening. Yes, yes, yes. So are you like my daughter on... Um uh, Christmas morning wakes up and sees all the presents under the tree with this that big huge smile on your face just really proud of what your paper was able to accomplish well I wasn't proud yet because there was so much activity I mean they're just I mean there were there the last decade I haven't been able to catch a breath and really be proud look back and be proud of uh, of, of anything yet and we still have a long way to go Right. I mean, we've got to make sure that we execute that that this we do things right. Um, and honestly, I, having in some small part helped to give birth to this industry, there are times when I do I, I feel a lot of pride um, because engineers are doing such remarkable breakthrough work. There's other times when I cringe where it's just like you see things that are being concepts that don't make sense that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars and you just ugh, you know you don't want wasted resources you want everyone to do the right thing even though even I don't know the right thing to do because everything's so nascent but I mean part of the beauty of what we're going through it, it, it's kind of like the genetic algorithm where you know you just got to let things work out you've got to let all these different experiments um, try new degrees of freedom, and and no one knows exactly which one is going to be uh, the the best approach. It's very much like what happened with the Wright brothers, uh, you know, in the first twenty years of aviation, where people were trying everything, and you just kind of have to let that happen, and and let go, um, so that nature can take its course and. And you can have survival of the fittest. You're right about the Wright brothers because they they had absolute perseverance in in those early days um, from Ohio to eventually to Kitty Hawk. 
what they went through, then back to Ohio with the uh, with the accident. So the perseverance is the key to this. Do you think the industry as a whole has the perseverance to keep going if they do have a situation similar to what the Wright brothers had? Yes, yes. Um, they're I, I mean, not every company, eVito company developer will will survive, right? I mean, if you look back at the early days of the automobile, right, you had hundreds of companies that jumped in. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why General Motors is called General Motors, right? It was a combination of 10 different auto companies that got together to, um, you know, form a union and be stronger than any individual startup. Um, so we'll have some companies that 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 go away that that aren't successful but i am absolutely positive we'll also have uh, the big winners that will be the new multi-billion dollar aerospace companies that um that, that have the the first position the pioneering position in this uh in this new urban air mobility market for those new aerospace companies, what is the future of urban air mobility? Where do you expect those winners to go eventually? Well, I, again, I, I think one of the other things I'm really proud of um, is that we've had a market-focused um, perspective at Uber. And I definitely attribute that to Jeff Holden, who was the chief product officer who made this happen uh, at Uber. You know, when I was at NASA, I was completely in a research world and oblivious of, uh, of, of product focus. And Jeff is the one who really taught me it's all about keeping to the first principles of enabling a core product. And so I very much see this industry um, with Uber's leadership in, in bringing the ecosystem together. Uh, of being able to focus on a crawl, walk, run strategy of implementing this technology. And, and we're going to do that in, in late 2023 to early 2024, again, with partners, uh, eVTOL partners such as Joby. And we will go through that first several years of crawling with just a few aircraft, prove out the operations, start to walk, and, and prove out all of the assumptions of this business model and that we really can achieve the low costs so that this pertains to normal people. And then in that 2030 to 2040 period, we are going to run and we're going to be able to scale this up to many more cities than our early adopter cities um, at, at scales where this is really a meaningful transportation system that lets city planners take off the gloves and redesign cities to be much more productive and to be this future vision where you have a transportation freedom that we've all dreamt of having, but never had the technology pieces to enable. Let's look 30 years out. What do you imagine a redesigned city with active EV tall service looking like? So I'll, I'll share a vision that uh, Joe Ben Bevert, uh, again, the CEO of, of Joby Aviation and, and myself share. And that is that you give this new degree of freedom to city planners that instead of having streets everywhere, 
and cars everywhere, that you can start to develop what we call cluster communities, where you can have an area of a mile or so where it's walkable, it's scooterable, it's bikeable. So Uber definitely still has a role in the cluster communities. But everything's close in that cluster. And in that cluster, you have these Skyport nodes that then connect you to other cluster communities. So you can quickly leap from one cluster community to another cluster community and have these large regions, which are still incredibly productive, that are interconnected with a nodal transportation solution. And, and this is a really important uh, concept. And that is almost all the transportation that we use daily are pathway-based transportation solutions. They're ground streets, they're highways, they're paths. You, you're stuck on that two-dimensional pathway. While with these skyports and aerial ride sharing, it's a nodal system. So if you have 20 nodes of skyports and add one more node, you now have 21 new routes where you're connected. While if you have a subway train with 20 stops, you're stopping at every one of those 20, 20 uh, paths, pathway stops, and you add one more, you just have a 21st stop. So to me, what we're enabling is an internet-like productivity increase that's occurred over the last 30 years for digital content. But now we're going to have that productivity increase for objects with mass, for people and goods to have a nodal transportation solution that's incredibly productive. Not only is it going to be incredibly productive, it's going to have a really positive impact on their lives. And you mentioned clustered areas and cluster communities. Related companies is starting to build that in Rosemary Square and West Palm. So that's going to be really interesting if you start to look like that and put a skyport there as you eventually expand out of Texas. And as we look to wrap up this wonderful conversation, what would you want the individual listening to this podcast to take away uh, with them? That this is very real and it's much closer than people think. Um, the technologies that we're employing are breakthrough. These are not helicopters. And I know that society has ingrained beliefs that are already in place for a very good reason about helicopters, that they're noisy, that they're inefficient. That's all changed with these new vehicles. They are really quiet. They're community friendly. They have zero emissions and they're ultra safe because of their design for redundancy. So I would just ask that the public gives us a chance overcome their pre-existing beliefs about helicopters and sees how much freedom that this new transportation will bring to them. I, I want to touch on a point that you mentioned there with redundancy as it relates to the public. I think it's really important. On a super high level, could you talk about the redundancy as it relates to the powertrain that can uh, support up to two components that can fail while the vehicle is still generating full power? Yeah, so this is one of the beautiful things about distributed electric propulsion is essentially that it's, it's scale-free, it's scale-independent. 
So what I mean by that is if your electric motor is one horsepower, 10 horsepower, 100,000 horsepower, it, it doesn't matter. That electric motor is still going to be 90% efficient and still have a great power to weight. That isn't true with turbine and internal combustion engines. As you make them smaller, they become less efficient, less reliable. And so we have this new degree of freedom with these electric propulsion technologies to put them all over the vehicles, to distribute them. And what this distribution does is it lets us design the aircraft to be redundant. So instead of having one engine that if it breaks, the aircraft has to come down, now we have eight or 12 electric motors. And if any one of those fails, then the aircraft can still produce all the thrust and have all the control that it needs to be able to fly successfully. It is this inherent design for with and for redundancy that enables eVTOL aircraft to be so much safer than a helicopter. That's an incredible way to wrap up this conversation. And Mark, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the SAE podcast. And I'll sum it up like this. It's all changed. And we, we thank you for your leadership of what you're doing in the eVTOL space, for writing this paper, to helping to usher in the future of transportation. And I thank you so much for coming on this podcast for this wonderful conversation. Hey, this has been a, a real pleasure. Thank you for the awesome questions and the chance to, to talk about this. It's, it's such an exciting future that we're, we're going towards. You're welcome. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.